Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, Mike, we must not have been too bad this year because even with all of those Krampen around us at the Krampusnacht yeah. on Wednesday, we made it out without getting taken away in his basket. I was so scared that I was going to be <laughs> taken away in a, a bag by a bunch of wild beasts and beaten with little <sighs> trees. Thankfully, I guess we played it well enough to survive. <laughs> we did. We did. Okay. So what we're talking about here, guys, is in Milwaukee, they got a big festival called Krampusnacht. And it's based on the character who we've talked about on the show, Krampus, the Christmas demon, who in some European countries was like St. Nick's helper. I said, well, St. Nick brought the good stuff to kids that were well-behaved. Krampus brought a basket that he would put you in and beat you. <laughs> and take you away. Yeah, or drag you to hell was another thing. So oh. little bad kids, the threat would be we will be, you know, drag you to hell if you're uh, misbehaved. You know, nothing too bad to be afraid of. No, it's fine. <laughs> St. Nick was there as well. Like the St. Nicholas. Kind of dressed up like the Pope a little bit. but uh, <laughs> Pope Nicholas. But yeah, we talk about Krampus all the time because, you know, he's one of the most well-known cryptid creatures. And uh, if mm-hmm. you want to learn more about him, one of our very early episodes... Othersidepodcast.com slash 13, lucky 13. We go all through the the tradition of Krampus and some of the other Christmas demons. Yes. It's pretty interesting folklore there. and I think so too. And Milwaukee with its German heritage, oh my gosh. There were, what I think they said there were 1,200 people there. And it was a Wednesday yeah. night, so people was partying. <laughs> it was great. There were 1,200 people all dedicated to partying on, uh, you know, like St. Nick's Eve, which when I was a kid... You know, some kids had St. Nick's and some kids didn't. You know, it wasn't even a tradition that was done by all the people that I grew up with. And people were really decked out in their Krampus costumes. So cheers to everybody who did that. And also to everybody who just boogied down on the dance floor while we were playing. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) The thing about this, so Krampus, I mean, it looks like a a furry demon or these outfits. And what was great, though, we had like 30 different Krampen, which is the, the German plural of Krampus, Krampen. Uh, so it's not like octopus. It's not crampi. That would be like a Latin <laughs> derivation. It's it's krampen, which is a German derivation. But the thing is, they have these festivals in other parts of the country. But even Bloomington, Indiana, which is the biggest Krampus festival across the country, Bloomington gets about 5,000 people. Wow. But they still only have like 50 krampen. Oh, you know, like okay. Outfits. Yeah. So for a f- the fact that Milwaukee is only the second year and, you know, one-fifth the population, but they have like over half as many people dressed up and going all out uh, means that it's it's a really special event. It was really cool. And I hope we can uh, perform at it again next year, but definitely I'd like to attend again and see how it grows (laughs) from this year. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So I'll put up a couple pictures from Krampus Knocked on the show notes for this particular episode, and you can check that out. But unfortunately, it's not going to be all Christmas for the episode. We're going to save that for next week. This week... We have a returning guest, Peter Biebergal, who we brought on last time to discuss his awesome book, Season of the Witch, 
how the occult saved rock and roll. Uh, I'm just you know looking over yeah. um, that particular episode. The cover, season the witch, has like David Bowie, Ozzy, and Jimmy <laughs> Page. And you know we interviewed him before David Bowie passed away. Yeah, and that was episode 26, also an early one, way back in 2015. Oh wow! <laughs> um, and so Peter Bibigal, he's been busy. You know, he's been writing and. He, uh, there's a little bit of background on him. Like, so he went to Harvard Divinity School. And so when it comes to discussing spirituality, you know, he's done it with the best of them. (laughs) And you really see that uh, when you read his book. And his new book is called Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. And he's not afraid to get down and dirty in the details of everything of this book and, and how people have used spirit boxes and and radios and all kinds of technology in trying to talk to the other side and how this isn't just like a recent phenomenon like now we have the spirit box and Wendy what's your favorite piece of like paranormal technology I don't know I have to say that I still am an old fashioned and I think just regular old EVPs just sure. really you know the audio recorder picking up something that your ears don't And then when you reprocess it or use your software to look at it, you find those things. We'll be talking a little bit about EVPs in this interview. And in Strange Frequencies, he's got an entire chapter based on that. And the, the woman that he interviews, Donna Morgan, one of the reasons she's really fascinating is that as she was talking to the phone company and wondering why she could hear her dead brother in law's voice on a voicemail recorded after his death. The, uh, the technical support person who was working at the phone company at Verizon or whatever is like, well, um, this happens more than you think. And I was like, what? <laughs> Seriously? So I went, yeah, so I went, I want to learn more about, you know, what they get at the phone company because that seems like a, a fascinating thing in itself. It does. Anyway, but I won't keep you guys waiting. <laughs> you came here for Peter Bibergall and his awesome book, Strange Frequencies, and let's go talk to him. We're here with Peter Biebergal, the author of a great new book, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today on See You on the Other Side. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Totally glad to. And I got to say, uh, if you guys have not listened to the podcast where, I mean, we talked to Peter three years ago about his book, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. I recommend that conversation, number one. And number two, I recommend if you have any interest in rock and roll music from like 1965 to 1990, and even if you're into old blues and stuff like that, you are going to get a history of So I just, I cannot recommend that book highly enough to anybody interested in that. And Peter, I got to say, I think you've surpassed the quality of that book with this new one by getting personal and... How did you get inspired to go for the technological aspect on the supernatural? Well, as you might recall, one of the things we talked about, I think, in our discussion about Season of the Witch was this idea of the occult imagination and this broad spectrum of both belief and interest. Sometimes it evokes fear. Sometimes it evokes inspiration. But there's sort of this broad spectrum of not just practices that we call the occult, but also the way in which we engage with these these symbols, these ideas, these images. And rock and roll was a pretty potent way to explore that. But it also led me, doing that work led me to want to see whether other sort of shapers of culture, like rock and roll is, 
where we can also investigate this part of ourselves that, again, this isn't necessarily an investigation as to whether or not these things are literally true or not, but rather why do we as human beings continue to engage with these things, either in in the case of technology as inventors, as artists, as engineers, and sometimes even to deploy uh, fakery and trickery. And so that was attractive to me to turn my attention towards some other way in which the occult as an, as a field of, of imagination uh, could be explored. And I, and I, you know, in our talk, we're probably going to use the word imagination a lot. And I want to make mm-hmm. sure your listeners know that I'm not using the word imagination to mean just making stuff up, right? I'm talking about this sure. essential part of what it means to be human. It's the place where all of our ideas and inventions and systems of thought arise from. Well, you know, when talking about sparking the occult imagination and and this whole aspect of it, what's interesting, I think, is, you know, we're not that far away in age. You're a couple of years older than me, but your first book, exploring the uh, that aspect of rock and roll music, like when we grew up, musicians were as, uh, you know, they were not, I hate to say the word gods or whatever, but you treated artists and great musicians and things like that as almost superhuman. Absolutely. Yes. And we've totally moved away from that as a culture. And now we hero worship people that work in the technology field. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is it is fun to go back and watch, even on YouTube, some of these early live videos of Led Zeppelin, say in the you know late 60s, early 70s, and, and watch Robert Plant up there. And there's no irony there. You know, this is full on Dionysian, you know, <laughs> liberation via these incredible sounds. You could never pull anything off like that today. It would either look like it was just either you were making fun of or you were a, um, you know, you were a cover band, right? Like who could do that, that we would take, not necessarily even taking seriously, but to be odd in that way, right? I think that's an awesome point, especially Robert Plant. I mean, because obviously Led Zeppelin loved to use, uh, you know, occult symbolism and everything. But when you think of him on stage and you think of the audience and you think of a live show, there was a transformational experience. Absolutely. Uh, with a live rock concert, almost as in a religious ceremony. Right. And I think about that when I think about now we have these Apple webcasts or whatever coming live from Cupertino, California, you know, in that big weird spaceship they have for an office. And you have it, it's covered on every tech blog and there's a live blog and they have all those people and there's a live cast and you can watch it on your Apple TV, your Chromecast or whatever. And people follow these things when it's just the announcement of a new phone. Yes. Like, like you would follow your, you know, Michael Jackson. I I remember when Thriller premiered on like Friday night videos or whatever. My mom let me stay up late so we could watch Thriller on Friday night videos. And you have that same kind of excitement. And we're talking about ways to transform yourself. And what I love is when you mentioned the the occult imagination, that we have this spiritual sense in us that almost seems innate. Yes. And 
we're always looking for ways to explore it. And now more than ever, technology is part of that. But the thing is, technology has always been part of that. And this is like what I, what I go through in your book. So what did you feel when you were doing your research for strange frequencies was the earliest example of humans trying to use some kind of invention or technology to explain whatever's out there? So there probably are earlier forms that will, let's sort of first define technology. So I would, for the purposes of this book, define technology as any way in which we try to manipulate the material world using sort of human inventive uh, faculties to take something and do something with it that it originally wasn't intended to do. So we are, and, and using it in some ways to further our own, connection to nature or to dominate nature to you know so even just the hoe right is a is a piece of technology right but in terms of the of of supernatural occult and religious practice one could even say that a a a scene stone or a shoe stone like john d used is also a piece of technology he's taking this piece of stone that has been polished to almost a mirrored surface so that he can have a relationship to the spirit world that he wouldn't otherwise be able to. And in fact, there's a place in John Dee's writings where he talks about the, 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 the scrying stone, the scene stone as the, as an extension of his eyes, you know, that's like, he even uses this idea. Like we described it's how I would describe my glasses that I'm wearing, right? This thing that gives me more sight. And just for a quick clarification, John D was in the court of queen Elizabeth, correct? That's right. And he was her astrologer and he's also responsible with, along with his companion who may or may not have been pulling one over on him, a fellow named John Kelly. And together they developed something called the Enochian language, right? Which is supposed to be the language of the angels or the language of Adam. And this is many uh, contemporary Western magical uh, systems use Enochian language as part of their their ritual work. With those stones, though, you know, is that that different than the, uh, oh, I always say it wrong, is it I Ching? The I Ching, well, I mean, so the I Ching is also a, sort of an oracle, but again, it's just, again, this other representation where most divinatory or, or these kinds of magical activities require some material element, some piece of, if you want to call it, tech, even if it's the tech of just a polished stone, right, that's required to get you, uh, that, that elevates your own senses, that that, exa- that extends your own faculties. For the purposes of the book, though, I saw the legend of the golem, the, the Jewish legend of the golem, as sort of one of the earliest stories that really captured the idea that the human being as a kind of inventor, as a maker, and even as a hacker in some way, was building something from the earth for the purposes of carrying out some divine purpose, some magical or divine purpose. Now, could you tell everybody that golem story? Because I don't think, 
I didn't even hear it until like late high school. I think I read a in a singer play or something like that. I oh yeah yeah when I first heard it. So yeah, um, maybe a lot of our re- listeners might not have heard it. Yeah. So there's many versions of the legend. Even the Brothers Grimm have a version of it. There's uh, obviously uh, you know very old Jewish tales about it. The essential story is that. Um, the Jews of, of Prague were being harassed by the Christians in what are called pogroms, right? And so they went to the rabbi and they said, you have to help us. The, our lives are miserable. Please do something. Use some power from God to help us. So the rabbi goes and he, based on some Kabbalistic knowledge, constructs this creature of clay and then he in there's different stories he either uh, puts uh, a Hebrew word on its forehead often the word emeth or he puts a scroll with God's name in its mouth you know there's sort of different variations the golem comes alive it goes to protect the people but it also goes on a rampage and ends up just going on a mass you know, chaos and slaughter. And the Jews say, no, this is not what we wanted. We didn't want anybody killed. We just wanted to be protected. You have to stop it. And so the rabbi in, in, in one of the tales, the, the golem has gotten so big that he has to climb a ladder. He erases the name and the golem falls into stone and crushes him. Which is basically also the story of like Iron Man by Black <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And there's also the story, you know, the golem is just put to sleep and he, there's still the golem is still in the attic in the synagogue of Prague. You know, there's sort of these tales. And this story was even made into a movie. Uh, it was one of the early, it's one of the first silent films, a German film called Der Golem. And this story really captured a lot of not not only Jewish, but non-Jewish imaginations and would become very much attached to the Frankenstein legend in terms of, you know, this construction of these of of something that uh, that we are producing life. I actually think they're very different stories. Uh, Frankenstein is really about you know, immortality, the human, seeing if we can make human beings immortal by stitching together dead body parts and reactivating their brain. The golem is really building from scratch, uh, imitating God insofar as that God made Adam out of the, quote, you know, the earth, and, and we will return to the dust, as it were, that the rabbi is performing a similar activity. He's he's having to uh, to do what God does, but but of course, but it's much less hubristic than Victor Frank. Yes, I absolutely. That's a very very important point. And in fact, most of the uh, rabbinical and other commentaries about the golem are always that the golem really isn't that impressive, anyways, because for one, the golem can't talk. And so it's not anything like Adam. Adam, not only could Adam talk, Adam was responsible for naming all the animals, right? So, hey, and halfway through Frankenstein, the monster is like quoting Paradise Lost. Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, it, it's it, it's actually fan, a fantastic part of the book of the novel when that happens. But but it's exactly right. So, and I do think no, I think again they both 
uh, speak to this idea of the human being sort of intervening in our own sort of spiritual and material destinies. But for the, for the rabbi, it is, it is, again, it's about constructing this tool that will serve some kind of religious or spiritual purpose. Um, and, and so, but this, but the golem does become a metaphor and it often is, is back, goes back and forth with Frankenstein of things like thinking about artificial life, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, where is our responsibility to not take this too far? Will the golem quote, get too tall that we'll lose control of it? And so it does serve, I think, even maybe even better than Frankenstein as as a as a nice uh, sort of tale for us to start to ask some of those questions. Well, I mean, the Golem versus Frankenstein. People always talk about Frankenstein as a warning about you know technology, and that's true to some extent. But when he created the monster in Frankenstein, he's creating a, a living, breathing like a, a th- something with a consciousness. That's right, exactly. And, and when you, cr- you know, I feel like the story, the Golem, is maybe more like, oh, that movie that came out a couple of years ago with Oscar Isaac, uh, D- Deus Ex. Where- oh yes, I've heard. Yes. Oh, you mean Deus Ex Machina? No, it's just called Ex Machina. Oh, that's right, Ex, Ex Machina. Yes. Where he creates, you know, that artificial intelligence robot, and then that—that's what goes berserk. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And it is also this that he it's trying to serve some need, whereas Frankenstein isn't trying to create a monster to go and do his laundry for him. He's trying <laughs> to conquer. Deal. Yeah, he's trying to conquer death. Right. That That's the point of, of what Frankenstein's trying to do, at least in my reading of it. Sure. No, I, I'm I'm with you on that. And so the golem is using technology, even though it's it's not what we think of as tech, but it's using like the earth and the name of God, which I mean that always comes up in, in different, especially in the Kabbalah, like all the permutations of the name and exactly, and using that name to then get to work. That's right. You know, speaking of Jewish tradition, though, King Solomon is such a like a of all of the things that we're talking about when you talk about the occult imagination I feel like people can use King Solomon for almost anything because he created the automaton yes but like he had like an autom- like they have a stories about the automata in his throne room yes so that's right and that comes really uh, out of a out of the Greek tradition of these sort of living statues and and you have to remember there was always this there was always this sort of internal tension there about graven images and part of the reason why you didn't have graven images is because you were, was so that you wouldn't worship them like the big bowl that comes down in 10 commandments or whatever if you guys remember they have edward g robinson yeah, right. you know he like he's he's like let's set up the big bowl and worship it and then when <laughs> exactly. moses comes down he's like and that's right that's right he's like what are you guys doing <laughs> And so what's very interesting there, though, is that um, we do have a lot of early magical um, practices that involved um, animating statues for prophetic purposes so that the, the statue would, would come to life and tell you some secret 
right? And it would be a statue of the gods, of course. They were statues of the gods. Like Zoltan and Big or whatever? Yeah, exactly. That's right. But it was, you know, you had to perform all these very, you didn't just put the nickel in. You had to perform, (laughs) you know, some very complex rituals, right? What I love about that is, okay, we're starting with that humans have been doing this since the beginning. And you really get into that in the book uh, in the first couple of chapters when you go into the golems and, and you go into the uh, automata and you talk about the uncanny valley and people trying to almost you know recreate humans and everything like that. And then you start getting into uh, like as we kind of move on and you go up to uh, Lilydale in New York, which is the like spiritualist home. Yeah, it's, a, it's an intentional community there where it's a town, it's a township, and most of the people li- live there, as my understanding, are all mediums and have all been able to sort of, you know, demonstrate their chops in some way to the board or whoever governs the town, you know, the people that make the decisions about who can live there. And you can lease some land and buy, and buy a house there. And it's usually in the summer where people flock there to uh, sit with mediums and try to communicate with lost uh, loved ones. And we're very familiar in Wisconsin. We're familiar with that because we have a place called Camp Wanawa. Oh yeah, which is with spiritualist community here in Wisconsin, and we have the Morris Pratt Institute in Milwaukee that was established based on the like teaching people how to be spiritualist mediums and everything. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And spiritualism has a long history with technology, uh, particularly because of of the, well, there's two things first, I think that are essential. The first is, is that the, around the advent of spiritualism was also the invention of the telegraph. And for a time, spiritualists were called uh, mediums were referred to as spiritual telegraphs. And so there was this, this uh, spiritualism was, was also an attempt to kind of, um, to give this religious activity a very rational thing. You have to understand something. When you communicate with a uh, spirit through a medium, you're not getting magical secrets of the universe. You know, you're, you might find out where a lost ring is, uh, but for the most part, it's about the messages of comfort, messages of 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 of, cal- of a calming nature. In fact, uh, Madame Blavatsky, uh, who, you know, who started the Theosophical Society, she she was bothered by the spiritualists, and vice versa. They thought her work was too invested in a magical and occult sensibility, and spiritualists do not consider what they do necessarily as magic or occult. And uh, Madame Blavatsky was frustrated and would think, you have all this access to the spirit world and you're not asking them for the secrets of the universe? Like you're completely wasting, like you're wasting your your dime, you know, <laughs> as it were on the phone. So, so it's very important part to understand that, that to call the spiritualist, uh, the medium a, a spiritual telegraph was, again, partly this kind of linking it to something that's very rational. This is just a kind of technology. The human being is just a metaphor, you know, the, the technology is just a metaphor, this very rational, scientific thing. And so very early on, spiritualism became very uh, spiritualists and the community became very excited about things like spirit photography, because here again was something that demonstrated the, the, 
the reality of spirits, not as something that happens through dreams or prophecy, but, but just a fact of what it means to be alive and then no longer alive. So almost like that, I mean, obviously the antithesis is supernatural because it's not super, it's just, you know, regular, like talking to somebody in the telegraph, like calling somebody yes. up, like, like, anything. that's right. It's, it's so like preternatural. It's just a little bit more than what we're accustomed to, you know, you still, but, but the thing is you still need special tools. You need the medium or you need the camera in the case of the spear. And what's interesting about spear photography too, is that it, this, this, the camera, it's not that the person taking the picture is necessarily doing anything special. It's that the spirits on the other side are themselves manipulating the technology to imprint themselves on the film. It, it, in, in a lot of the early spiritualist writings about spear photography, there's suggestions that, that the spirits themselves are kind of acting as, as hackers, right? That here, and they were waiting for us to kind of invent this camera, this technology, so they could make themselves known in this way. So they're just manipulating the photons and the light and the chemicals and, you know, all of this to to appear and it's something that they want to do. And so you set it up, you say, you know, somebody would go into the photographer's studio and they would sit down. They'd said like, I hope that you can photograph my brother, John, who died in the civil war. And the photographer would say, would take, would, as they were taking the picture, John, please make your appear to, uh, you know, show yourself to us on the camera. It's, it's not that maybe John might be here and we just have to hope it's you're calling the spirit to be participate in this technological activity. Now is the, the medium is part of the technology here because are they the ones that can call them forth? Or is it is it just they're always here, and the medium finally can is the, is the one that can hear them? No, I think it's I think it's that the well I think in some of the somebody like Mumler who is a Boston photographer he might have said that he has become so attuned to it that he can call the spirit to then work with him and the camera to 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 reveal itself, and so. Uh, I mean, obviously, spirit photography was huge in the late 1800s and in the early 20th century when spiritualism was such a powerful cultural force. Now, but it's it's still there. We have it in Wisconsin. Um, it's there in Lilydale, New York. And when you went there with Shannon Taggart, who is a spirit photographer, when you walked in, and you're a guy who's obviously interested in this kind of stuff, you have an occult imagination, but... I would say that reading enough of your stuff that you don't let your occult imagination get away with you. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way to say it. So you go in there, and what was it like? Had you ever been to a, like a seance like that before? Like not a, a seance that's kind of magic or a show, but a seance meant to talk to the straight up talk to the dead before? No, and and I want to make sure though that one thing that I think wasn't always clear in the book that I should make sure is that so. Um, you can work with mediums in Lilydale, but the seance that I went to where the where we went to sit with a medium who was going to produce ectoplasm, that happened on the outskirts of Lilydale. I mean, very close. But in the history of spiritualism, early spiritualism was very much about these performative seance activities, very dramatic ectoplasm, spirit cabinets, table wrappings. This is sort of what we refer to as sort of the, the Victorian 
uh, era of spiritualism. The Fox sister kind of thing. The Fox sisters, the Davenport brothers, a lot of stuff happened on stage. You could go to see almost like you were going to see a magic show and they would sort of sell it like you weren't they would they wouldn't admit whether it was a, a magic show or whether it was really spiritualism you know you so you weren't really sure what you were witnessing but there was a lot of dramatic things especially the ectoplasm things like that so as spiritualism developed though and particularly as that stuff became easier to debunk especially as we became more te- camera technology became more complex but that also meant more people understood it. And then you also started to have film and you would have filmmakers like the um, French filmmaker, photographer, magician, Georges Millais, I think is how you say his last name, silent films. He's the guy that did the horse. He did the horses, right? Exactly. And, and the, uh, uh, the launch on the moon where you see the, the rocket ship, go into the eye of the moon and the dancing moon girls but he would do a lot of stage effects and really ramp them up to do almost like ghostly spirit photography effects on film which people would then go see in the theater but people knew in that case that they were witnessing this wonderful new technology called film and this guy was a master stage magician so there that started to the lines were no longer blurry as it were so spiritualism started to move away from this performative dramatic representations of itself and became very much just about the medium and the person who has died speaking through them. So you didn't have those. Now, there's still mediums that do things like table tipping and things like that. And um, But I, don't, I think even Ouija boards are not really something that's part of the typical spiritualist repertoire. Okay. Uh, I could be wrong about that part, but for, for, for the most part, it's a much, like I said, a simpler thing. So this seance that we saw was something that might not have been as welcome in Lilydale proper. And so we had to go to visit this person outside of um, just, you know, just a few blocks away as it were, but, but still not in the community itself. And so I went with Shannon to, so we did visit Lilydale and I had some experiences there, but most of what I did with Shannon uh, Shannon Taggart, who you mentioned, is a photographer. And basically, I shadowed her and went with her to this seance where she was going to try to capture on film this medium producing ectoplasm. Now, when you got in there, how were you, when you set up and everything like that, in the book you talk about, they take your phones, they take all your devices and stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you have to have an open mind. You have to. Sure, I was ready for anything. I was completely open to it. And so, what kind of group? I'm interested. What kind of group was it that went? Was it like true believers and you and Shannon, or was everybody just like, okay, uh, let's just see what happens tonight? My, My sense was most of the people there were were true believers, and that true belief though was interesting to me to witness it at least there. And I write about this in the book is that they were certainly excited and happy when the phenomena would manifest, but they weren't awed by it. And that was a curious thing to me because I would, because it, it, and then what I realized it's because it is in some ways, very matter of fact, it's a very, 
it's an expected occurrence that when you go to see a medium, they are going to speak to a spirit. And so you're, you're not, there's not a sense of, I don't think there's as much a sense of wonder as I had thought there might be. And so how was your sense of wonder though? Like the first time, like did the voice, like did all of a sudden his voice change? Did he put on an accent? Yeah, there were voices that, you know, you're in a pitch black room. So suddenly there are trumpets floating around. There's, you hear, you see drums and you hear the drums. There's a whistling sound. You said like a slide whistle, right? A slide whistle. (laughs) And the medium is, as you saw before the lights went out, bound and gagged inside a spirit cabinet. Oh, man. So so that's the experience. Now, I, I think partly I was so focused on, on Shannon preparing to try to take photographs and her interaction with the medium around those questions. Because by that point, the medium is supposedly not even able to communicate anymore. You're only communicating with the spirits. And so Shannon needed to convince the spirits to allow her to take photographs uh, during this, this sessions. So while this was all going on, you're in there. Was everybody's kind of belief in everything seeming to power it? You know, because if you've been a room full of amazing Randys, you know, and they've been, pa, give me a break. Or if you're in a room full of true believers, that this is, oh my God, let this happen. I want to talk to my grandmother kind of thing. So what were you feeling off the people around you? Was it changing your own perspective a little bit as someone who's probably a little bit skeptical of the whole thing? Yes, because you're, you know, you're holding hands with people a lot of times. They're singing. People are, are, um, you know, yelling and there's music playing. And there is a sense, especially when it, everything first starts to happen, it's, it's extremely dramatic and it's, and, but it, it, I, I think that I gave over to it in the same way. And I think we have to connect this in some ways back to season of the witch and rock and roll in the same way that I would would give over to a certain musical performance. And, and I say that with all due respect, it's not the, the question at that point of whether or not the, there were actually spirits in the room was kind of irrelevant. What, what was, what was happening was there was this performative experience that was altering consciousness, right? And so the play for me here is in allowing my consciousness to play in those in that field rather than sitting there asking myself, is there really a spirit in the room? I mean, that's well, not even an interesting question to me to tell you the truth, right? The question is, was I able to give over to the moment? And for the most part, early on in this, I was. I will say that this particular medium made some, I think, some errors in terms of their tool, their performative toolbox, as it were, where it was easier to for the suspension of disbelief to be muddied a little bit. But I want to say something about that, too. One of the people that I interviewed for the book is a stage magician by the name of Ferdinando Busima. 
B-U-S-C-E-M-A. I urge your uh, listeners to try to uh, look him up and watch some of his, his performance. We'll find a link and put it in the show notes. Great. And Ferdinando is a stage magician who uses the language of hermetic and ceremonial magic to elevate the stage magic that he's doing. And because for Ferdinando, the point of the point that what he may or may be not doing is a trick isn't what's happening in a magic show. What's happening is that he is trying to alter your consciousness. He's trying to change your state of mind. He's trying to trigger your imagination. And so what Ferdinando would say is that he's not interested in the people who can suspend disbelief. He's interested in the person who is holding firm to saying, this is a trick, this is a trick, this is a trick, and still being able to put them into an almost hypnotic state of wonder. Like some kind of enchantment. It's an, it's exactly an enchantment. And it's, if to further a little bit, uh, one of the other per- people I work with is a, a ceremonial occult magician by the name of uh, Joshua Madeira, who uses electronic gadgets and builds his own uh, devices and incorporates them into his occult ceremonial magic activities. He doesn't make he's he's perfectly open about the fact that when he does a sort of you know public or you know in an art gallery performance of his magic using technology that some of it of course is what you would call stage magic tricks sure but it doesn't matter because he's induce he's trying to enchant you and 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 that word enchantment is I'm I'm, I'm really pleased that that's the word that you use because that for me is what all of this is about it's not about whether or not this medium actually produced ectoplasm or didn't or if even ectoplasm is real or not it's that being in that moment and then particularly working with shannon and and looking at her photographs it it, it induces this state of enchantment and enchantment doesn't need doesn't need on or off yes or no right you know it's really interesting here peter it just makes me think about in the Catholic Church, they have transubstantiation. Right. This idea that when you are drinking the wine, when you go up for communion, and you make sure you go to confession first, everybody. Can't go to communion <laughs> if you got sin on the wine. Uh, That's why I haven't been to communion since 1992. <laughs> oh, um, boy. <laughs> but no, but the, so when you go up there, that you're actually drinking the blood of Jesus, you know, the blood of Christ or whatever, the, and the body. And that's, but that's the thing. Like when you, we talk about that state and that enchantment, and we're talking about, does it matter if the ectoplasm happened? Ectoplasm actually, you know, shot out of the guy's nose or whatever. Does it matter if it's actually the body of, if people have that belief, if they feel transformed, if something happens, you know, when you're playing the Ouija board, you might be faking and fooling around. It doesn't mean somebody's not actually trying to talk through you. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what they say. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you either. So, <laughs> so I, I love that idea that, you know, when you're in there, and, and this is something I also, you know, really got from your book, was that the people who have these experiences and are going through this, and they're having paranormal experiences through technology. And I know that you, 
you try to separate between like a cult, paranormal, supernatural, like you get very yes. specific about the definitions, which is great because it makes it a pleasure to um, read. Real quick, before we get into the, the last part, I want to quiz you on the electronics. Can you give me the, the kind of differences between the words? Because I know you try to be very specific about the verbiage. Yes. And I know that this is a little bit contentious and not everybody agrees with my Sorry. definitions and I completely get it. But so I define the occult typically as having to do with a spectrum of practices and beliefs that have to do with uh, the uh, human beings manipulation of some uh, activity, you know, some activity which is intended to manipulate the spirits to either communicate with them using methods such as divination, ritual magic, correspondences where like is to like. And if so, if you want to activate the power of a certain planetary nature, you might use a particular plant or a particular stone or a particular color to create that correspondence of energies, things having to do with invocation and evocation. So that's, you know, again, a very broad spectrum of pride would even put tarot cards potentially in with all of that. Then there's the supernatural, which is probably more closely linked to that because it has to do typically with the spirit world. So something involving mediums, something often involving something maybe like a Ouija board, something where there's intended to be direct communication with the spirit world. It's not necessarily about things that were alive and now are dead. It's just about the otherworldly. Miracles might be considered supernatural happenings or occurrences as opposed to occult occurrences, right? A miracle is, by its very definition, inexplainable. That's right. Uh, but again, a miracle doesn't happen as a result of somebody performing a ceremonial magical activity, although one might argue that the results of those are miraculous. Right. But the Virgin, a statue of a Virgin Mary is not an occult phenomena. I would argue that's a supernatural or other words we could use. Sure. Paranormal for me, para is abnormal is typically what I would categorize as things having to do with the extension of human faculties. So psychic phenomena, telepathy, um, uh, what is it, uh, you know, where you, uh, autumn, what's it called, where you can see something happening at a distance? Remote viewing. Remote viewing. Thank you very much. You bet. So those are the kinds of, of things I would, would categorize as paranormal. What's very interesting about that is I had a very brief conversation with somebody at the Rhine Institute. Oh yeah. JB Ryan. Yep. And I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to have paranormal things in, in this text. And, and in some ways ha talking to one of the researchers there really helped me think about that. He said to me that in many ways they're bothered by the ghost hunting type activities and things like that, because they don't, see these things as supernatural phenomena. They believe that they're paranormal phenomena being mistaken as supernatural. So he says when somebody says their house is being haunted by a poltergeist, they believe that that poltergeist phenomena is more likely to be a, a unconscious telepathic mm. phenomena 
the person is stressed out, things are flying around the room, they're doing it, but they don't realize they're doing it. It's their in it's their power, but they blame it on ghosts. Right. It's psychokinesis, but they don't realize. Psycho, sorry. Exactly. Exactly. So that was a very, that really helped me make that distinction for myself. And I realized that in that way, what I wanted to do was sort of cleave it there. And that in this book, I would not be dealing with phenomena that somebody like the Rhine Institute would consider non-spiritual phenomena. Sure. Well, something you get to in the book uh, when you were talking about the ceremonial magic, you know, just a minute ago, and we were talking about this before in creating that state of enchantment. I mean, that's straight out of uh, Dean Radin's real magic book, you know, because like Dean comes in and he'll say like, it's the ritual that makes it happen. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it's, you gotta go through all the stuff in order to get yourself in that right mindset. That's right. And I really like how when you went and explored all of these different phenomena, you went through it in the way that you didn't like just be like, okay, well, obviously I can just cut to this part right here. Or that I can't. So for example, one of the things in, in the golem uh, section is I make a case that maybe I could try to make a golem. But then you go and you read what you have to do. And one of the things you have to do is go into a trance state and recite 47,000 permutations of Hebrew letters, right? And so... You can't just go and read the Arthur C. Clarke's 9 billion names. <laughs> exactly, which is a fantastic story <laughs> if, you're, if your listeners haven't read it. But indeed, and so the idea there is that there's two things. It's telling you if you can get to that state of enchantment of reciting those 47 permutations, you will be able to make a golem, right? <laughs> but at the same time, it's also saying you're never going to do that. Right. So whatever that means then in terms of what the golem actually is or isn't, I think is a very powerful way in which that is a playful uh, thinking about all this. So you know, the last section of the book, you go through and you, you get to the electronic part. And this, I was super interested in this part because you talk about getting like the Radio Shack 150 and one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that, you know, I had the 201. That was like my seventh. When I was Show seven off. years old, I got that for, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had the, I think I had 75 and one was the best I could get. I think I was just a couple of years behind you. So that was just what was cool in 1983 or whatever by the time that I got there. Oh, yours had the, it was like blue and had the plastic blue speaker. Yeah, it had the speaker and all the, like the first time I like put all the, and to everybody, this is like a Radio Shack toy for kids. And it was like a, kind of electronics for beginners. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because they had the little, they had the spring loaded, you put the wires into the little springs. And they, right. It was a circuit board and yeah. you, would, you would just take wires and you could do all these different things. They, would, they had 150 experiments or 200 experiments of things that you could do by following the schematic of the wires and putting it together. And I remember the first time I made like a light meter was that I was like, yeah. oh my God, look at this. Like I put these wires here and it tells you how light it is. Right. It blew my mind. <laughs> exactly. When you said that, like I like high high fived the air when I read that in the book. That's um, funny. And so seeing that, and then when you're like, okay, because you had done some research into EVPs and you had looked into the original 
like ITC, instrumental transcommunication, um, the stuff where people were trying to get EVPs in the, starting in the 1960s. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to build something. And I'm going to go in and I'm going to build a PKE meter like Egon from Ghostbusters. Yes. And uh, that was another point. I was like, I got to see where this is going. Yes. So you go in there. What were you trying to look for when you were trying to build an, a PKE meter? Well, I think part of it, so this, again, there's two things here is I think that even saying to yourself, I am going to build a device whose, whose intention it is to see if there are ghosts wavering along the electromagnetic spectrum is to put yourself in a, in a, an enchanted state, mm-hmm. Right. Because you have to, to even do the thing, you have to be able to be playing inside of that space. What would be the point of building one otherwise? Right. Right. And so I wanted to see what that experience would be like. The problem is, is, I mean, I'm looking around my room right now. There's a PS4 and I mean, there's so many devices around here that that thing's going crazy. You know, there was no way to now if I had taken it and gone into a, an abandoned house, that probably would have been more interesting. But so I probably had already um, undermined the experiment just trying to do it here in a, you know, a modern house. But when you were trying to create it, like what was the first thing you were like, OK, what do I measure? You mean what did I th- imagine? What what did I think it might measure? Right. Well, yeah, the idea is, is there, are there potentially spirits in this room that are playing along those frequencies that would be able to be picked up by this device? Okay. And so when you were visualizing it and and thinking about it, what were you thinking the frequencies or the fields that spirits might screw around on? Well, if if I understand your question, I think it, again, it has to do with, and and this goes back to the whole EVP and spirit photography thing. And I think that this is very important. There's a couple of ways to think about this. The first is spirits are always around us and we just have to be at the right place at the right time to capture them. And these technologies allow us to do that. Okay. That's one way to think about this. The other way to think about it, which is, I think, a way in which at least the one of the, the woman Donna Hogan and uh, who I interviewed about EVP and reading some of the texts of some of the original EVP folks like Rod Ive and Jurgensen. Right, and, and Donna Donna's story is beautiful too. At the same time, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's she's an amazing person too. Is that the spirits again are waiting for us? to take technology that they themselves can manipulate to make themselves known. Spirits don't have voice boxes if they're actually disembodied souls. So they ride along these frequencies, and if you take a radio and hack it in a certain way or build one of these E, e meters, what um, you know, the the meters, right? The, the K two and stuff like yes, that. that. Then the spirit will say, "Oh, thank you. Now I can communicate with you, and I will use this technology." And so you have this relationship that's back and forth, where both the person and the spirit are acting as these mutual hackers. 
that have taken this technology and are using it in a way that it, you could argue it was not originally meant to be used right. are breaking it and so that there can be this communication between the worlds. And I think that that's a more interesting way than rather to think there's just spirits all around us and may or maybe not. I'm going to pick it up with my little meter here as to say that once I have the, the very act of making the thing opens the door to the potential for the interaction. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it totally does. And what I love that idea there is that it also opens it up to all kinds of different technologies. That's right. So it doesn't just say that, okay, well, you know why you know why the spirit box works? The spirit box works is because it's super easy for spirits to talk through the AM radio or, you know, as it goes through. Right. Or you know why the ovulus works? Because, you know, the spirit the spirits just love the ovulus corporate. You know, I don't right. you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I like about that is saying that it's intention on both sides. That's exactly right. That, that creates something. And this also goes back to that idea of enchantment where we have, you know, you, you talked about, you know, you have to be in the right mindset. Like I'm going to make something that's going to find ghosts in this room. Let's go do it. You're trying to find your, a way to get to the right mindset. And what if on the other side, it's the exact same. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, right. Oh man. Now like the, the ghost is like, now I got to meditate for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And there's this very funny thing. And one of the early spirit, uh, spiritualist texts, they ask this with a medium ass of spirit, how does spirit photography work? And the spirit says something like, well, we do certain manipulations of the photographic plate but actually, it's a little bit too complicated for you to understand. You would have to be on this side of life to be able to see what it is we actually do. So there's like they also have their own secret knowledge of that they have to perform. Right. And I, I love that idea, too, because it's technology on the other side as well as, as ours. Right. A couple of questions from listeners who were interested in when I was saying like, hey, I'm going to talk to uh, Peter Biebergal about his brand new book. Um, is there anything like, you know, if you heard him on Coast to Coast or anything like that, is there anything that, you know, we should ask him on the show? One of the first questions I got was from uh, Chuck Martin, who's one of our listeners, one of our Patreons. Hi, Chuck. He's interested. Ha did you do any research at all into like the Connect SRS cameras? Have you seen people use those on a ghost hunt at all? No, maybe you could tell me what those are, though. I'm curious. It uses the same kind of technology that, like the the Wii or the Microsoft Connect uses in their video. Games. Oh, yes, like yes, motion yes. Capture. Okay. yes, 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 yeah. And so sometimes you go on ghost hunts, and people just have the the cameras that kind of use that, and they'll see motion in the side of the room, and they'll be like, "Well, that's the ghost." Okay. So I didn't know if you had a chance to see. No, that. I had not done that. That's very interesting, though. It would have been interesting too if I had had a because I know a lot of people hack the connects, right? To do different. It would have been. I wish that I had known, and if I had had one, I might have tried to do some experiments. That's for the second edition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, another one for my sister, Allison Jorland from Milwaukee Ghosts. Uh, Allison uh, enjoyed the the audible version of strange frequencies, which is also available guys. And we're going to have that link in the show notes. You can pick it up. If you just want to listen to it on your commute, she was wondering which technology did you find had the most promise for you personally? 
well, it's a big question, I guess, yeah. because what does it mean? What does that mean for me personally? I would say, though, I will say this to to that. Uh, the first is that looking at the, my work with Shannon, her photographs are in many ways the the essential component of this book. And, and for a couple of reasons, one, just because they're astonishing and, and I, or you should be able to link. She has a page with many of her photographs available. Oh yeah, so no, we'll, have, we'll have that link in the show notes. So one of the things also is about is her approach where, you know, Shannon says to me and it's quoted in the book. She says, I'm not trying to clarify anything. I'm trying to create these ambiguous states. So she doesn't take a picture to say, see, I told you ghosts exist or see, I told you the medium is a fake. That's not her intention on either side. She's trying to demonstrate by in many ways, misusing her equipment by misusing the camera, keeping the shutter open for too long, letting too much light in that these enchanted states, these ambiguous liminal states become more resonant and that we, that it's okay to be uncomfortable in those places. We don't need an answer. We should learn how to not have an answer in some ways by experience. So, so I, those were very potent for me. Um, and, and like I said, really were in many ways the, the core of, of, of this work. I also find that just because I just love them and they always enchant me, is the uh, early uh, uh, automata. So, if people you know want to do some do some searching on you know 18th century automaton and look at some of those devices, and you see these things like the automaton that can write a sentence. And these eerie ways in which you know that what you're looking at is a watch, you know, work device, clockwork device. Right. It's like we're becoming the uh, like, you know, they talk about the, the universe, like God's the clock. Exactly. And, like and you look at them and you know that that's what it is. And there is something that still so immediately inspires the sense of wonder that you almost question, like, why do I feel this way, knowing that I'm looking at something? Is it just because it's a wonder of technology? But there's something more than that that's happening. There's a there's a living quality that emerges that I think is really remarkable. I watched The Silver Swan like twice yesterday. Oh, it's what do you think of it? I think it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's incredible. So so those are the ones. But but in particular, it was it it's uh, Shannon's photographs? I think that are the ones that really stand out for me. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to make sure um, your EVP experiments with your father's tape recorder were very brave. You really you when you go back to the postscript. And, you know, you, you talk about playing the tape and hearing your mother's voice and your son never hearing your mother's voice, whatever. Uh, that was particularly beautiful. So everybody, this is, um, in addition to being very informative, you know, it's also Peter's personal journey. So I want to make sure um, you guys are going to really enjoy the book. And so I just wanted to say that, Peter, you were very brave, I think, for going in and working on your father's tape recorder shortly oh, thank after. thank you. Yeah. 
I appreciate that. Because the thing is, you'd love to have an EVP, but are you ready to have that kind of EVP <laughs> exactly. when your heart is so raw? Exactly. So that really is something. So Peter, if they want to pick up a copy of Strange Frequencies, where can they do that? Sure. I mean, I'm sure your local bookstores either will have it or can order it right away, but you can also get it in any of your regular online retailers you know, easily. And do you have a website where people want to join a mailing list or anything like that? Um, if they look for me on Twitter, uh, just my full name without any periods, if you want to put a link to that. And there's all my email address is also in my Twitter um profile so i'd always love to get uh you know a note we'll, we'll always write back if somebody writes fantastic well i cannot wait to, the, to find out the next thing that you're gonna explore and the thing is i have got like 25 questions here of which i've got about 23 we haven't even got to yet. Uh, <laughs> so i'm gonna have to get you in when we start deep diving on some of these topics on the show we're gonna have sure to bring thing. you back thank you so much for having me again Once again, we want to thank Peter. If you guys are interested in picking up a copy of Strange Frequencies, you can find a link to pick it up at othersidepodcast.com slash 226. And that's where the show notes are. And you can see our cramping photos and read a little bit about it as well. Wendy, you know what's exciting? What's exciting, Mike? I bought my first spirit box this week. You did? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I've used it before, but I've never like had my okay. own to experiment with it. Wow. And so you know, I was inspired, you know, by reading Strange Frequencies and, and the conversation I had with Peter. So I bought the spirit box and I'm gonna go down and use it next week in a secret haunted history operation and I'll come back with a report and tell you guys what I find. Wow, that's very exciting. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited to really go out there and, and spend a lot of time doing investigation and use the spirit box. And that's the inspiration behind this. This week's song. So that idea of people looking in the darkness, you know, using whatever we can to find out if there's any, uh, you know, if there's anything else, if there's anything bigger than ourselves in, in trying to talk to the other side. So reading Peter's book inspired me and also inspired this song called The Strangest Frequency.
listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know, one of my favorite parts about Krampusnacht, Wendy? What was that? Was being able to do live broadcasts to our Patreon members. That was really cool. And we also have some bonus footage that we got, which we will be sharing with the Patreon community uh, from our performance and from some of the Krampus parade. We get to go on lots of paranormal adventures. And sharing that with you guys is one of our favorite things to do. So going live in the Patreon community, having these hangouts where we talk to the Patreons about the you know latest investigations and people we've talked to and the different paranormal news that we're going through, uh, that's something that we love to do because the community is what makes doing See You on the Other Side podcast, uh, it, it's the best part, is getting the feedback on the episodes. Oh, yeah. That's something we look forward to. In the beginning, I was like, okay, are these hangouts going to be fun? Like, who are these people? And then now <laughs> I, like, I look forward uh, to talking to everybody every single month and sharing with them the cool stuff that we find. So if you guys are interested in becoming part of that community, uh, then check out othersidepodcast.com slash donate. That's othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Yes, and we want to give a special shout out to our Patreon supporter, Ned, Dr. Ned. Hey, Doc. Yeah, he's supporting us at a level that he gets this shout out every single episode. And he deserves it because, Ned, you rock. So thanks for that. Thanks to each and every one of our community members. And thanks for listening. Well, well when Mike- you- <laughs> well, All right, sorry. You go. You start. You start up. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine.